Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. All right, today we have Mitchell Benson, uh, who is from Saverin Benson. He is a financial professional um, that helps in a multitude of ways, but specifically in family law cases. Um, His office is in Montgomery County. I also have my co-host here, Aaron Weems. Um, Mitch, thanks for joining us here today. You're welcome. So, Mitch, let's just get right into it. Um, So, over the past 18 months, um, and really we're seeing some of it happen now when we're looking at clients' tax returns, about how the the pandemic-related relief has impacted people financially, um, really on both ends, um, as well as we're going to see, you know, we've had a change in administration later on the podcast. We'll talk about just how that, you know, impacts individuals' finances. So why don't you just tell us some things that you've seen or that, you know, family law attorneys need to be looking for? I would say most pressing or maybe the, the greatest number of questions within the last two months is the advanced child tax credit. Uh, because those checks began hitting bank accounts or mailboxes, if you will, on July 15th of 2021. And what the Biden administration did, and I actually support it, I think it made sense to get money in the hands of appropriately income level families uh, to use now instead of waiting for tax refunds when you file a return. So this is the first time where they've advanced the credit and from what I've read about it is the money has been used to reduce debt, pay for childcare, you know, pay for rent, pay for the day-to-day things that are critical when you're supporting a family. So I think in that regard, it was it was well received and it makes a lot of sense. The way the credit works, though, and it, it, like anything else that comes from the government, there's massive confusion. Okay, so confusion part number one is what have I got it and I don't deserve it because my income is going to exceed that level in 2021. The check is not income, first of all. It's not income in that it's going to be reported on a 1099 or a W-2 or what have you. It's really a reduction of taxes. So if you think about a tax return, think about the old child tax credit, which was up to $2,000 a child. Okay, that reduced the federal income tax. It was a subtraction on page two. All this is, is a greater subtraction. Think about it like that. So it's really a an advance on what would have been a refund next April. So and, what's and- happening is that you're getting it now. And you're getting the advance on the, I'll call it enhanced credit, the additional credit, you know, which is up to $3,600, you know, within this bandwidth. And it's a tight bandwidth of income. And it phases out quickly. But here's one of the confusing parts of it. The original child tax credit is at a higher income level. So there's almost two phase outs. You have the original child tax credit, which was around last year that everyone knows about that replaced the dependency exemption. Then you have this enhancement that's on top of it. So think about a layer cake. The original one is layer one. The enhanced one is layer two. The enhanced one phases out at incomes 
that top out at about 150,000 for joint filers. The original one, though, phases out at income levels that are about 400,000 for joint filers. So you could receive the enhanced one, okay, and not be phased out, or you could receive the enhanced one and be phased out, but get the original one, which was $2,000. All of this is going to be reconciled on your 2021 tax return. So when the return is prepared and they see the actual number of children you have that qualify and your income, it'll all be reconciled on page two. So some folks may have gotten too much credit and there is a clawback, okay? Because the child tax credit was based on your 2020 filing. So in other words, separated parents who file separately and they rotate claiming a child or children, that could possibly be problematic at the time of reconciliation. That's correct. So the wrong parent got the check. And and conversely, it could also happen that if their most recent tax filing was jointly, it would likely go to the party that's listed first on their tax return. Well, it should go to a joint bank account. Most, a lot of people have fortunately put the routing number on their returns now, you know, instead of waiting for the post office to deliver a check, which God knows. So now the routing number, and we, we encourage you to do this, is put a routing number on your 2020 return. So your refund comes quicker, but that's in fact how they're paying the child tax credit. So you as family lawyers need to identify that in your property settlement agreements. There's a whole section in property settlement agreements that have to speak to all and any and all COVID related refunds, claims, programs, loans, anything that comes along from this and how it's divided. And I think Again, what you clarified there, in short, is that the individuals who possibly would be expecting a large refund at tax filing time, and they traditionally got a large refund, it doesn't mean that they won't get a refund, but it could be, it would likely be, it will be lower because they receive that advance during the year. Well, or think about it like this, yes and no, the refund it would have been more than traditional because of the credit. So it's not, if you look at last year and say, the refund from last year should be the same, it actually could be more because remember that only half the credit's advanced. It's six months. The other six months is sitting in a credit to be taken when you file the 2021 return, which makes the filing of the 2021 return really important. And and it's important on you as family lawyers to get the routing number right or to at least get ahead of this because the wrong person might have gotten the check. And I guess to that end, it's it's worth noting that there is a way to stop this, is there not? There is, and you can go online. The IRS has a great website. It's getting gotten better to say, you can get online and say, I don't want it, but you had to do that already. Okay, that should have happened before July 15th. And you can also, if you don't otherwise have to file a return, because some people don't file, you know, because their income doesn't hit it, you can go online and claim a credit because it's a refundable credit. You don't need income to get the credit. So there are some people that just don't file because they have social security or they were below the exemption, which is now, you know, the standard deduction, which is pretty high for couples and uh, they don't file. But the IRS, you know, did get ahead of this. And I would say that their website is pretty good. All right. So Mitch, moving on, Um, other pandemic related items, either on tax returns or otherwise, that we need to be looking for that are hitting right now. Well, I would say, let me just say one other thing about 
credit for one year only, again, in this in the Biden plan that passed after he was inaugurated, the child and dependent care expenses. The credit for child and dependent care expenses has been increased significantly. So now the credit is up to $8,000 of expense and can be up to 50% of that as a credit, which is very significant. Because if you think about a family with two children and if you have 16,000 of expenses, they could be getting 8,000 of child and dependent care credits on top of the child tax credit. So focus on this because this is important. This is sort of an outlier, it's one year only as this was, as the enhanced credit was. But if you think about credits, and not this is not a deduction, it's a credit, it's dollar for dollar. It's a huge jump, okay? And the phase out is a lot higher. And again, this is something you have to talk about in a property settlement agreement because somebody, one spouse may be paying for childcare. The credit may end up with the other spouse. And you have to really sort this out because the credits in some cases are going to reduce income, reduce income available. They could also be an enhancement to income available for support because it reduces federal tax. And as you know, federal tax is one of the subtractions from income to get to net income available. And a a question that I always had was an an, an argument I I regularly bring up at domestic relations or, or otherwise with the court is does the parent who pays for the child care does that parent need to be the one then that claims that child as a dependent, not not a deduction, but as claim identify that that child on their tax return to receive the benefit of the care expense that was paid for that child? Yes, it has to be a dependent. You can move the dependency exemption, as you're aware. And that moves the child credit also. When I say dependent exemption, what used to be the dependent exemption, I think it's the 8332 form or whatever the form number is, which moves the child tax credit and now allows the child care credit. So in other words, for a parent to receive the financial benefit of the of paying for child care, which you just identified that it is substantial this year, the parent who's making that child care payment should also be the parent then that claims the child on or identifies the child on their tax return. That's correct. And, and I guess to take it a step further, if you are the if if you have the spouse that is paying the expense and is paying child support, it might actually behoove you to really push for the ability to have that client claim the child, or if, I should say, if you're the dependent represent the dependent spouse, have that party claim the child because it is going to create more uh, tax benefits to them, which will then in turn create more income available for, for support. Agreed. And you could also look at it. There's a third way, too. And just thinking about it is if you're the one paying the child care expenses and someone else is getting a benefit for it, maybe there's a credit to you in terms of the amount that you're really responsible for. Right. So because of the shared the shared uh, the shared credit that occurs through the domestic relations or the child support analysis. And and that and I'll be honest, I mean, I, I have not ascertained whether the software that is being used by the Pennsylvania Domestic Relations Office has this built in for this year. I I don't think it does, but to my knowledge, they do have a credit built in so that if a parent is paying $10,000 out of pocket, knowing that that parent at the end of the year is really only net paying 
whatever the the prior credit was reduced from the ten thousand dollars only the net amount is being apportioned between the parties um i i don't know if it's built in um but that i I would agree with you that to the extent that's being apportioned the credit should also be built into that apportionment agreed all right um mitch what next What, what else should we be looking for you know uh i'd be remiss not to talk about the ppp loans and advances it was a great program it, it for the most part succeeded i would say i mean there's always there's fraud and abuse and just let me talk about the bad side first and i'll tell you about the good side because i won't spend a lot of time the only thing on the bad side and this affects you is that you need to have in your property settlement agreements clawbacks in case there is an audit or a recovery required from the sba for loans under ppp which were forgiven because even though they don't look at anything 150 and under, they're looking, they're definitely auditing everything 2 million and over. And I think the banks are, the banks were absolved really from all their due diligence because they had to get the money out. Normally a bank would never lend you money in six days, you know, without really doing a lot of due diligence. But the SBA took that over and said, listen, you don't have to worry about it. You won't be held responsible. But some banks are seeing fraud and they're bringing it to the attention of the federal government. So if you happen to have an, you know, a PPP loan and you're not aware of what the other spouse is doing, just be aware there could be a clawback and you need to put that in your property settlement agreements, who's responsible and who's not. But the good news is that everybody else, which is mostly every single person, did it the right way. They're asking for what's called forgiveness now. And most people can apply for forgiveness and they'll get it because they spent the money on the right things. There's no need to go through all of that. But Importantly, the PPP, the money, which was lent, now forgiven, is either income available for support with no income tax, which depending on who you're representing is a thing of beauty, okay? Or it's an asset with no income tax. And again, depending on who you represent would be available for a division. Uh, And just to clarify, I mean, these PPP receipts, I mean, they're by and large part, you know, paid to a business owned by a spouse. Yeah, right? they would be part of income. Just think about it like this. It's part of revenue. It's additional sales. I mean, just real simple. It's additional sales. And depending on how the year turned out, okay, it could be maybe they had a really bad 2020 and the purpose of the PPP was fulfilled, that it made 2020 more bearable and your income is still lousy for 2020. Okay. Or in some cases, and what we're seeing is, believe it or not, in a lot of cases, is that a lot of the businesses hung in there and they managed to get through the year either the same or better. So if if the PPP money, let's say it was 200,000 major revenues, the exact same in 2020 as it was in 19, just big pretend it's the exact same number. And it makes you otherwise had 800,000 of sales in 2020. You add the 200 of PPP. Now it's a million in 2020 and had a million in nine in uh in 19 right million of sales each year but the 200 of ppp got you there in 20. the thing about 20 is that the 200,000 is not subject to income tax so now your revenue is the same you're saying well i'm in the same spot so why would my income change when you do your net income available for support only 800,000 is taxable 200 is not so it drops right to the bottom line that's what we're seeing So how do you see it on the tax return? How do you know it's there? For businesses, there's a schedule on page four or five of all business returns, Form 1120, 1120S, and 1065 for partnerships and LLCs. 
that reconciles book income to tax income. If the PPP money was included in income in 2020 and not and it should not be included in tax income, nobody would include it if they can exclude it. It's going to be in that reconciliation. You'll see the number. It's called Schedule M as in Mitchell, M1 or M2. If the party left the amount as a loan and decided to forgive it in 2021, you'll see it as a liability on the balance sheet. So my point to you is that you have to look at the balance sheet, have to, to get an understanding of where the PPP money is. So either it's in income or it'll be in income next year. The balance sheet is really important this year. You know, we're very balance sheet focused as forensic accountants, but for you, you really need to be looking also and looking at Schedule M1. And getting back to, just getting back to the I, the, the question you asked, I, I don't want to go too far back, where you talked about the clawback, where in a, a scenario where, or a hypothetical where you, you believe that a clawback would be appropriate in, in a marital settlement agreement. I, is, would that be a situation where the, you know, the company, um, you know, or the business enterprise of a spouse otherwise had a normal year or, or a less affected year and the PPP forgiven loan, in other words, was treated like an asset? Is, is that the type of situation you're looking at? It's only if there's fraud. There's only going to be a clawback if there's fraud or it wasn't or the forgiveness application was was disallowed because they didn't spend it the right way. Like you can have a terrific year, get the PPP money. They're not going to claw it back. They don't care about that. They only care about if it was fraud, if there's a fraudulent application. And that has happened. And with respect to the clawback, it would be some contingent term in a marital settlement agreement that right. identified if this has to be repaid back, the parties agree that it shall be repaid back as follows. That's correct. And it's it's almost the same thing as an indemnification as a indemnification for taxes. Just have to be aware of it. If somebody got half of it and then it's audited and there's a problem, what do you do? And, and I think you hit the nail on the head that you're, you know, having it in the marital settlement agreement would be great if you're that far along. But for a lot of people that are looking at the benefits of filing jointly, those separated for this tax year, for the you know the 2020 tax year, if they're on extension, you're going to be looking at tax indemnifications uh, to make sure that everyone's going to be uh, indemnified if uh, if they misallocated those PPP loans. Agreed. It, it, it it's the same thing. And but remember, it's not going to affect taxes because it was never taxed. What could happen? Is if they, I, I would imagine if they claw it back, they want the money back. Okay, if they claw it back and they can't get the money back, then it's going to affect um, taxes. Maybe they would say it wouldn't be forgiven. And, and Aaron, you, you just brought up a good point that I, I was not thinking about. I mean, I was thinking about from a clawback perspective, but from the perspective of you're signing a tax return with a spouse who received PPP money, it's important to include or at least consider indemnification with respect to that spouse that's not involved in the business later down the line. Agreed. All right. Uh, Mitch, what else you got for us? You know, there's a lot. I mean, look, I, I, as you've seen, there's so much going on in the tax world right now. Um, affecting not only this year's taxes, but what's happening in the future, okay? Uh, the infrastructure bill was passed. It hasn't been approved by the Senate yet, but it was passed by, you know, the, the House. And it has a lot of good things in it, but it doesn't have tax increases in it. 
Okay, the infrastructure bill is the trillion dollar bill that, you know, it's hopefully going to have, hopefully it'll get done soon and be be made into law. Everyone was concerned that it was going to be funded with IRS enforcement action, which did not happen. But just a word to the wise, there is a lot going on in terms of enforcement right now. Um, we're aware of several large settlements that just happened in complex partnerships with IRS. And I think that the administration on both sides of the aisle is behind additional enforcement. And going forward, I would count on more audits of partnerships, businesses, and higher worth individuals, especially those involved with complex partnerships. And and when you said, I think you started just down this road. I mean, from could you give us an example or just talk about where the rubber meets the road? for this additional enforcement and what that would look like for our clients again but you know potentially considering this from the perspective of a spouse who's not involved in a business financials partnerships etc yeah i i think it gets back to the now here's it gets back to that tax and tax indemnification agreement and also it also gets back to the situation of where you're splitting partnership interests so frequently because that parties don't want to have an appraisal or it's impossible to value assets and it might have to do with real estate or private equity and things like that we're and if there's if there's appropriate cash flow we are advocates for dividing partnership interests so one spouse gets half or whatever the percentage is but you have to go into that with your eyes open you know and understand that some of these partnerships are complex and they have potential audit exposure. So while it might be terrific on the increase in value side in the future in cash flow, what I'm saying to you is look at the partnership agreement, understand what they're getting. Because on the outside, it might be great, but under the hood, it might be complex and be very, very much subject to audit. Over the past 20 years, I think I've had five partnership audits and our office turns out a thousand partnership returns a year. It just didn't happen a lot. It's going to start to happen more. And and I think by the news of what happened last week in the Wall Street Journal, if you looked at the settlement of Renaissance and Medallion and the amount of money that was that the IRS um, was able to recoup, it's in the billions of dollars. And I think they're on to this now that it's complex. These audits take time, but we want to recover dollars and both sides of the aisle want to recover dollars. You know, you touched on something I think that's really important for people to think about, which is I, I think it's very common for a dependent spouse to to want to have sort of the you know if then type of clause for a you know a partnership interest that the independent spouse has you know they've invested in something and they own a, a minority share in an entity they say well when that pays out I want my my cut and it always assumes that somehow that's going to be a positive and uh, and the important part is really like you said look under the hood see if there's going to be the opportunity that in fact it, you know, one if you're the party that holds that partnership. Uh, don't make it limited to that. If they're going to have skin in the game, they should also have skin in the game insofar as capital calls, tax liabilities, things like that. And if you are the the party that's sort of getting that passive interest or that, you know, you're not you're not actually getting a stake in it, you need to be prepared for the, you know, if it if that investment doesn't go the way that it that you think it is. I think we're so accustomed to, to everything going up, up, up that we forget that not every investment is going to be a winner and there may be some downside to it. Yeah, I I agree with that. And and look hard at these things. And I guess, you know, the the takeaway with IRS is that they're they're gonna they are manpowering up right now, okay, in anticipation of this. Because they've realized if they spend X with enforcement, they can get triple X back in dollars. 
That's a good, that's a good return. Uh, you know, I think from, uh, <laughs> right. from, you know, Hey, from, from a taxpayer perspective, wanting the people that, uh, you know, you know, to see your government dollars at work, um, there, I mean, that's a good business decision, um, from, on, from their perspective. Um, yes, all right. Sir. What, what else, what else should we, we be looking for here? That's, that's coming down the road. Yeah. Well, what's coming down the road, a couple things. Um, You've been reading about, I'll call it infrastructure part two, the $3.5 trillion bill and what would be included in tax increases. And that's far from law. But the Ways and Means Committee today, uh, which is the 9th of September, is doing their markup. And believe it or not, there are several, we've gotten several emails about people worried about tax increases going to effect starting tomorrow for capital gains. So what's been discussed is a couple of things, but let me give you the big ones. The big ones are capital gains tax increase if you have income, taxable income in excess of $1 million. So what we believe that is, and what it seems to be from the green book is that if a party's income is less than a million dollars, they're still gonna be subject to the zero, 15 and 20% regime, which it is now. I think I believe that if it's over a million dollars, it's going to be that part that's over a million dollars that would be subject. So but it applies to all your income. So if you have wages of a million and your capital gain of five dollars, it's going to subject that five dollars to the higher rate. Okay, because it looks at all your income. So just be clear on that. Okay, I'm not so sure that it's going to be phased in any differently than that. And I think they're looking at it as total income. So. The trick with this is what do you do? You know, first of all, not everybody has a million dollars of income. But what we're doing this year, if we can, is that we are accelerating taxable gains into 2021 because we don't believe and it's rare that a law is passed and the date of enactment sticks for income items. So even if the ways and means marks up today, I think it would there would be hell to pay, if you will. If in fact capital gains tomorrow were taxed at a higher rate, and and just give us an example of, uh, or a hypothetical of, of how someone would would implement this to avoid the higher capital gains tax. Uh, for example, an installment sale. If you had an installment sale that occurred in June, okay, and you have a down payment in 2021, and you have four installments over the next couple of years, you have an option to elect out of installment reporting and not pay your gains in the future at potentially higher rates as you receive the money, elect to report all the income this year. It's risky. And the risk is what if you don't get the income in future years? Okay, you lose. But the achievement is potentially saving 20% on capital gains rates. So we're discussing this with some of our clients that sold businesses. There's a big risk reward in it. Okay, and it's not for the faint of heart. But it's something to think about. You could also just accelerate capital gains on portfolio assets. You could call your broker today, okay, and just say, I want to sell. And we have clients that normally sell at the end of the year. So instead of waiting till the end of the year, they're doing it honest to God now, just because they don't they want to. So that's how you can that's two examples of accelerating gains. And that that would result though in this year generating additional tax liability in 2021. I mean, just that that's the end end result in the hopes that in future years, if this higher tax rate comes into effect for capital gains, that that would be avoided then in those other tax years. 
Right. And if you're representing, you have to really work with code, you know, your other counsel in, in your matters where you have an installment sale that's outstanding or a sale of a business or anything like that. You should really be talking to them about taking the opportunity, which is a chance and accelerating gains and putting both spouses on that additional tax. And and the trigger here for in, in your mind is otherwise income in excess of a million dollars, because if you're not if you're not reaching that threshold, looking down the road, at least from what we know right now, that those those other percentages are not at least are not being discussed as being changed in any type of serious manner. Yeah. And that this is a big change and it's getting a lot. I think it's going to get a fair amount of pushback. I, I personally think if you're old enough to remember the 28 percent capital gains rate, that it could center on that number, because I think corporate rates, you know, you know, they wanted to push them up from 21 to 28. They might end up at 25. You know, there's I think the Biden administration, you know, put a number out that was high in an effort to come down to something more in the middle. And I think even even there's something about that 28 percent rate that has a familiarity, if you will, to at least an older generation where they could deal with it. The other thing that's in the $3.5 trillion bill, which is not insignificant, is the additional Social Security tax on income in excess of $400,000. That's a big number. And as you know, the Social Security tax, not the Medicare tax, the 6.2, stops at about $140,000 of wages, you know, right around there. And it stops, like there's a ceiling on it. The Medicare goes forever. What they're suggesting is that that would kick in once again once your income exceeds 400 and go on forever, which is extremely expensive for someone making a million dollars a year. Okay, that is a big one. They're also discussing phasing in the net investment income tax for higher incomes as well and taking out the benefit of the Section 199 deduction, which is a significant benefit for the real estate and business industry because Section 199 allows a 20% deduction from taxable income for business income. So what it does, Section 199, this is really important. It was a big part of the 17 Tax Act. The highest individual rate is 37%, as you're aware. But if you have a business, a flow-through business, a real estate business or a manufacturing business, under Section 199, if they have the right criteria, they can subtract 20% from that 37%. 20% of the business income as a deduction, and it gets them down to about 29% as an effective tax rate. It's huge. And the reason they did that is to put flow-through businesses on parity with regular corporations, C-corps, if you will, that now have a highest tax rate, I think, at 21%. So it was unfair. If you have a regular corporation, a C-corporation, it would pay 21%. Mm-hmm. And you're a partnership or an LLC, and you're paying 37%. You're like, what's going on here? So they put that in to sort of get it closer. But now they're thinking about reversing that, which would be extremely, extremely painful. And I think very poorly received. And and what what would you see businesses doing, you know, small business owners doing if that were to occur? What what adjustments would it would become C-Corps? I think that they would either become I. The, the problem is with a C corporation, you have to still get the compensation out, which is at a high rate. So there's not a lot of option there. And, but if they're a business that retains income that can't distribute because they're manufacturing, they need money on their balance sheet. We have a lot of clients that have started to think about or have switched the C corps. 
back to the old C-Corps, which, you know, going back 20 years ago when they started to switch back to S-Corps. Right. So I think, I, I don't think that's going to be a winner with the manufacturing businesses. It might be that the manufacturers are still going to get it, but the real estate industry loses on this and they won't get it. So it's hard, it's hard to really know. I mean, real estate seems to be in the, I say, bullseye of getting hit with the tax increases because between losing that 20% and now not allowing 1031 deferrals on a like-kind exchanges, it would be extremely difficult for real estate developers going forward um, if they have to pay tax on sales and reinvesting that money in property because they would have to buy less property. So- Mitch, anything else? Anything else here for you, or even closing closing thoughts of, yeah, of what we I should be looking that, for here? You know, we're seeing a couple other things that you should be aware of as family lawyers. Um, I don't know if everyone knows what a donor advised fund is. A lot of families have set up donor advised and philanthropic funds lately as an easy way to put money for charitable purposes away in a convenient year. And the way the donor advised fund works is it's set up by a Schwab or a Fidelity or a Vanguard, and it has your name on it. And you, as a family, take a tax deduction in the year the money goes in, which is great if you have a big income year. And as it doles money out in the future, you don't get a deduction. Again, it's just there. It's like a family fund. They're easy to set up. They don't cost anything. They're not a private foundation. You don't have to file a tax return. We, we push them with our clients all the time. The problem is that when you get divorced, someone's likely to forget about it, okay? Or how do you divide it? It's not your asset anymore, but everyone wants half of it or whatever the percentage is. So you need to ask as family lawyers, did you set up a donor advised fund? Because it won't appear anywhere in any 1099s. It'll be, it's nowhere. But you might have a spouse that says, listen, I want half. I want to control half because half my money went in. And, th- and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about, I want to receive half so I can use half. We're yeah. talking about who gets to control, right? Yeah, it's a control thing. And and a lot of these have serious money in it. You know, it's not just $5,000. They they can be open with as little as five, but we have them with five, 10, 50, and millions. For practically speaking, the, the tax deduction was already taken, presumably, you know, during the marriage and things like that. Now it's just really a question of control. It's a, a question of who gets to call the shots on where that money's going to be donated to. That's correct. And it's an emotional issue because somebody could be left with it and then have the kids involved in it in the family name and all of a sudden your spouse is out of it. And and in future years, you said Vanguard Fidelity Schwab, they're not sending 1099s under the social of the parties. It's just there. Gone. Yes, it's gone. You would never know it. Is it just held as is it just held as cash? Is there no interest or or anything that accumulates on it? That's a good question. They invest it with everyone else's donor advised money, donor advised fund money. And it's, you know, a trillion dollar investment. It's in the stocks and bonds and everything like that. It's a full investment. You get charged a management fee, but there's no administrative fee. It doesn't file a tax return. It's just think about your $25,000 by way of example with everyone else's 25 or 100,000 at Schwab. And you get a statement, you know, it'll say that, you know, the the Hoover or Weems family fund, and it has you and your spouse's name on it. And it's great until you get divorced. Mitch, any, anything else or even clo- closing comments? Careful this year with estate planning because of potential increases in estate taxes or reduction of exemptions. We have a lot of clients that are moving assets very quickly um, now into what are called grantor trusts. 
So realize that grantor trusts are very popular. And the beauty of a grantor trust is you can move the asset out of your estate. It increases in value out of the estate. That's good. The second benefit of the grantor trust, which is the sleeper, but the beauty is that the grantor can, and in most cases does pay income tax on the income from the grantor trust. It's a double benefit to the trust because you make a gift to the trust, you keep the income tax. So the trust grows tax, I'll call it exempt, if you will. It's great again while you're married. The problem is when you're divorced, someone is either wants to pay to continue to pay the tax or the spouses have to somehow share the tax burden or now they just turn the grantor status off and the trust bears the burden, which you can do, but it's lousy for the trust. So what do you do? So we're running into property settlement agreements now where we are allocating the taxes and saying as a party for our children, we believe the grantor trust is a good thing. One spouse is the grantor. There's they, they're going to continue to pay this tax, but the other spouse agrees to reimburse half. So so in other words, the, the grantor trust at that point in time, while it certainly has resulted in a, a lowering or reducing the risk, so to speak, of the concern that the exemption is going to be lowered, it, it's effectively turning into a lot, you know, a continued liability if you want to preserve, you know, as much as you can in that grantor trust. That's correct. And, and you can turn the faucet off one time and have the grantor trust pay its taxes, but you can't turn the faucet on and off. So it's an important election because it's a big number. You want to denude your estate by paying taxes. So you keep paying the taxes, your estate goes down, grantor trust goes up in value. Works. So that's it, what we're seeing a lot of. And you know, these the, what you're seeing when spouses set these trusts up for each other, they're called they're called slats, spousal lifetime access trusts. And you have to just, again, ask about estate planning, what estate planning has been done, what estate planning was done, what trusts have been funded or not funded, at least set up to be funded. You have to really understand what's moved off the balance sheet. And in some cases, great estate planning can be a a disaster when you're dividing assets, because how do you get the assets back? You have decanting rules. You can decant only in certain jurisdictions. We could do a whole session, I'm sure, on dealing with assets that have been transferred to trust when we get to divorce division and individuals wanting to include assets that have been transferred to a trust into an, uh, in a marital state for division purposes. We're, we're not going to go down that road today. Here. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, Mitch, any, any, any closing thoughts? Um, yes. Yeah, there's one closing thought I'll leave you with. Uh, watch out for cryptocurrency. Watch out for disclosures on tax returns. Read the paper and understand the IRS enforcement is coming down heavily there. There was a question mark on last year's return. Most people ignored or never saw about, you know, did you buy or sell cryptocurrency? It's at the top, right? You can't you can't miss it. If you're looking at the 1040, <laughs> they, they I, I believe they did that intentionally. It's it's they the did. third item down, I think, after the, after the numbers 1040, it may be two or three, three right below it. But now it's going to be more as think about the foreign bank account reporting, if you've ever seen that, the cryptocurrency reporting is going to be fit into the foreign bank account reporting and require extensive reporting of transactions. And I, you know, the IRS has already started to issue John Doe summons to a various exchanges like Coinbase and things like that. So this, you need to get, really get your hands around this, whether the parties have bought, sold, or hold. Because the question is, if you buy a Tesla with cryptocurrency and you have a gain on the increase in value of the cryptocurrency, even though it wasn't your intent to hold it as an investment, is the gain taxable? 
and so again, putting rubber to the road here, if you bought, you know, from actual dollars, ten thousand dollars of cryptocurrency, you know, a year and a half ago, at that time it was not enough to buy Tesla. But today, probably if you purchase the right one, it probably is enough to buy a Tesla, right? right. And is that gain from their ten thousand dollar initial investment, so to speak, to now buying a Tesla for ten thousand dollars from a year and a half ago, is that taxable? I guess I'm if I'm one of the new agents hired by the IRS here to recoup money, I would say it is, right? And that's that seems to be the way they're going. But it's it's different because think about it like this. Let's say you went to Europe with euros and you bought them here and, and it just so happened that the dollar went in the wrong direction. So your euros are stronger and you buy a suit. So you made money. But yeah. you buy the suit, you, that's not taxable. Right? You made money on your currency. So that was the analogy that I was thinking about and I said, how could it be taxable? You're not holding it as an investment. But that's not really where the IRS is coming out on this. And in a way, is that mostly because we've seen just the market has swung towards it being really a investment based more so than I think what what the futurists were envisioning is it being a blockchain way of doing these transactions. I Aaron, I agree with you. I agree. And I think what I would do is just just be aware of this. You know, make your clients very aware. Buy, sell, hold. And it comes under so many different forms, but it needs to be in your interrogatories, your questions and it's going to be a big disclosure in tax returns in 20. I don't know if it's going to hit 2021 because they've already been, you know, after draft, but I think in 2022 it's a big deal. We're going to look at it as foreign bank reporting part 2. And probably at some point having some kind of safe harbor much like that had to try to bring people back in who maybe missed that question on the 1040 conveniently. Yes, <laughs> yes right. Well, Look, uh, Mitch, I appreciate that. Um, just from your looking down the road there and final parting thoughts, um, we are going to do a, a podcast here specifically on cryptocurrency just to bring family law attorneys and in, in the family law world up, at least in part in that uh, endeavor, up to speed a little bit more on on just how it all works. Um, so that was that was a great parting thought. So so Mitch, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you, you spending the time here and, and joining us talking about you know, pandemic and related um, what's coming down the road with respect to taxes. And, you know, hopefully we can have you back sometime. Thank you for having me. Have a nice day, everybody. All right. Thank you. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.